You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts. Hello, welcome to War College. I am your host, Matthew Galt. I had an episode all recorded and set together about the great power competition between China and the United States, but that can sit for a week. Iran is more important. On June 13th, explosions, probably from limpet mines, hit two oil tankers in the Gulf of Oman. The United States has blamed Iran. On June 20th, Iran shot down one of the United States Navy's RQ-4 Global Hawk drones, basically a fancy unmanned spy plane. In the aftermath, the U.S. President Donald Trump considered retaliatory action, then pulled back. I'm recording this at 5 p.m. on Friday, June 21st. It's possible between then and the time you hear this, the situation will have completely changed. Iran is complicated. America's relationship with Iran is complicated. In the recent American imagination, Iran has become this country that stands in direct opposition to all of everything it's trying to accomplish in the Middle East. It's famously part of George W. Bush's axis of evil, and it often feels Washington's hawks have long wanted to go to war there. So, today, three shows from more colleges passed, most of them led by our long-gone host Jason Fields. Strung together, they represent a closer and more nuanced look at Iran. All of it with remastered audio. The first is a look at the strength of the Iranian military during the end of the Obama presidency and before the signing of the nuclear deal. The second is an interview with a New York Times journalist about Iran's use of Hezbollah. The third is a deep dive into Iranian domestic politics and its role in Syria circa 2018. I present all of these disparate parts and attempt to paint a picture of how we got where we are today. America's relationship with Iran is deeper, bigger, and much more complicated than one president in one moment. Can you tell us a little bit about what Iran's military looks like now and what it could look like in the future? We're talking about this because of the Iran nuclear deal, right? It's caused a lot of furor. Um, There's a diplomatic agreement that's going to halt uh, Iran's nuclear ambitions, but it will also end years of sanctions and most controversially, uh, long-standing trade embargoes, which prevented Iran from buying and selling weapons on the global market. So, you know, in the past few weeks, as after the deal was announced, you've seen all a lot of news outlets, headlines such as nuclear's, nuclear deals end to Iran embargo worries Pentagon over at military.com. Uh, LA Times ran an op-ed titled The Consequences of a Bad Deal with Iran. And you even see clickbait headlines such as five Iranian weapons of war America should fear. But there's... It's, there's, it's scary sounding, but there's a lot of questions. Um, one is, who exactly is going to sell Iran the weapons? Obviously, the answer is Russia and China. Um, but Russia only stopped selling to Iran in 2010. It's So for Moscow, it's going to be kind of a return to business as usual. It's not like Iran is this huge growth market for their weapons. Um, there's also the question of how Iran will pay for the weapons. Um, you know, they will, of course get their oil industry back up to speed, but the energies market now is not what it was even just five years ago. Um, so the better and more interesting questions, I think, are what is the current state of Iranians' military? What are they looking to buy? Um, how do Iran's leaders want to use the military, especially in the region? 
and how does the how does that military stack up against uh, Iran's rivals in the region? Um, so I will kind of turn that over to Robert for the for the big picture view. Well, war and conflict by nature is unpredictable. So a military is designed to do specific things depending on countries' own perceptions of what the threats are. And for Iran, those threats are principally the United States and its immediate sort of regional rivals. So Saudi Arabia, and the, the Gulf states, uh, United Arab Emirates, uh, you know, um, and, you know, Bahrain and others. Um, so when we're talking about, you know, the Iranian military, we need to put it in that context. So that being said, Iran has the largest military in the Persian Gulf region. Um, it's about a half a million troops. I mean, the numbers vary because there's uh, the regular army, the Revolutionary Guard Corps, and there's also the besieged paramilitary force. Um, so full-time war strength is actually more than one million uh, soldiers under arms. Um, but it's heavily defensive-oriented. So what that means is, is that it's it, they practice what's called a defense in depth in which you attempt to lure an invader in to the country and then slow them down over the length of the country. So almost like if you think of um, Soviet Union during World War II or Russia and Napoleon, uh, it's uh, this large military cannot project power abroad very effectively, but it's very good at repelling an invader, which Iran did in the 1980s uh, in a war with Iraq. And many of Iran's senior military commanders are veterans of that war. So they're very experienced and they know how to fight a conflict like that. But again, when we're talking about projecting power abroad, it's a totally different story. Also, uh, Iran lacks a lot of technology and equipment to, uh, to maintain a military beyond its borders. Uh, its military hardware is very old. It's antiquated. Much of it dates uh, to the time of the Shah, actually, which make, makes a lot of it American. Uh, but sanctions and the inability to buy hardware abroad, with the exception of few clients like Russia and China, has made the Iranian military's just hardware um, a little r rickety. Uh, so, okay, so uh, the United States used to be the biggest supporter of the Shah of Iran, which actually now it's been so long, people may not, a lot of people may not actually know that, uh, that up until 1979, uh, we were military allies. Uh, we actually helped prop up his regime. We uh, supported them in foreign endeavors, whatever they might have been. Um, and uh, as a matter of fact, it's because we sort of supported this very, very brutal regime that the Iranians uh, dislike us so much now, right? So when you're talking about equipment that's left over, you're talking about stuff from the 70s or even the 60s. Is that is that right, Robert? The 70s was was a, there was a big surge of, of hardware into Iran. Uh, the United States sold a lot of a lot of hardware in the 70s. Um, so we're talking uh, F-14 uh, fighter jets, um, F-4 fighters, uh, tanks, uh, you know, helicopters. And, um, you know, the, the, Iran is a big, well-educated country. I mean, and and and. And they've the military has done some pretty remarkable stuff to keep this this stuff flying. Um, so I think the total numbers of F-14s, which the United States no longer uses. I mean, this is the, the famous plane from Top Gun. Um, uh, 
has around 43, but about half of them are probably serviceable or, you know, capable of flying. But, you know, it's, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, and, but some of it's also kind of for show. So they have um, hundreds of Bell helicopters. I mean, these are air ambulances that you might see flying over, over, your, over your city. But there they've camouflaged them and added rockets. And it, they call them attack helicopters. You see the Farce News Agency, state-run news agency, promote these as a new attack helicopter, but it's pretty much a refurbished air ambulance in the United States sold in the 1970s. So, I mean, some of this is for show. You don't want to overstate the, you know, the utility of some of it. I'd say the, uh, the Navy is sort of in a, in a similar situation. I mean, it's, it's large. It's the largest Navy in the Persian Gulf, but it's, it's relies heavily on, um, small boats, submarines and, and small craft missile boats, um, that can effectively practice swarming tactics. And essentially it's like a lot of insects all buzzing around you. And you might be able to swat, you know, most of them, but all it takes is a few to get through and, uh, uh, they could, you know, sink your ship. Um, so totally different than when, a, you know, when if you're talking about a Navy, most people in the United States were thinking about ships that are, I mean, huge and hundreds of people are on them. And, and it just doesn't look anything like that, right? I mean, we wouldn't think of it necessarily as a Navy at all. It's, it's, a, it's a raiding force is what it is principally. I mean, it's designed to engage in a war of attrition in the Persian Gulf with its rivals shipping and could pose a threat to the U.S. Navy. But in terms of a conventional threat, I mean, that could project power beyond the Persian Gulf or even move troops across the Persian Gulf is very limited. Right. Okay. And uh, I just say, though, that, of course, when you say shipping, you mean oil. Oil, 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 <laughs> oil ships, container ships. I mean, this, this was not unprecedented. I mean, in the 1980s, Iran and Iraq fought. It's called the so-called tanker war in which both Iraq and Iran targeted shipping um, uh, in the Persian Gulf that was real or perceived to belong to their enemy. Um, and uh, so, I mean, and the U.S. Navy, I mean, this is something that the U.S. Navy has trained for uh, four years and actually engaged in, you know, in the war. So um, there was skirmishes between the U.S. Navy and Iran um, at the time. So um, you've been talking a lot about that they have, it's a very defensive military, um, that they don't have the kind of military you would use to project power in the region. But that doesn't mean that they don't militarily project power, right? Um, they have, they just kind of do it with commandos. Right. So, I mean, the, one of the principal like forces, uh, we've seen in Iraq and Syria is the Iranian revolutionary guards, Quds force. I mean, and, um, the way to think about the Quds force is like a, like American special forces. And what they do is they, they go in um, and it's very subtle. Um, it's covert and they train, advise and equip local indigenous forces uh, to fight better. Um, and, and the Iranians are very good at this. This is their, the Quds forces in, in the Middle East, the Quds force is probably the best um, force for doing this. Um, and, but that is a reflection of, Iran's conventional weakness in terms of power projection. So uh, let's just talk for a second about, you know, I probably should have laid this out earlier, but I mean, there are, are fronts on which Iran is actually fighting right now, right? I mean, there are Iranians inside Iraq um, and inside Syria, um, and they're uh, playing a support role like you were just talking about training troops. 
uh, they're actively fighting as well. Is that right? It, that's unclear to me. Um, okay. Um, I mean, we've, we, we see, I mean, we know that, I mean, it's pretty clear that there are Iranian advisors um, and even unmanned you know, drones. Um, but these are like reconnaissance drones. They're small sort of Iranian produced reconnaissance aircraft. Again, I mean, the, 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 f- the point is sort of make, sort of bolster the fighting strength of the local forces. Okay. So does this, is there any chance that this deal changes things? Does this change things for the Iranian military so that they would be able to um, bolster their military and become more a force of the region, more a force in the region? Or do they even want that? Is the methods that they're using do they work? Are they happy with the way that um, their their military functions and they project power in the region? Well, Iran Iran um, lacks a lot of really key hardware to project power in the Persian Gulf. Um, Iran relies heavily on uh, mi- uh, anti ship missiles. Um, it's not clear if Beijing or Kremlin would be willing to sell them, but um, these are the kinds of weapons that Iran wants. Um, I, but I, I think I have to put it in perspective. I mean, okay, so I think you're right that. If Iran is able to buy hardware overseas or on the on the international market, the Iranian military will benefit. But we have to put it in perspective. So um, the Iranian military spends about upper limit about fourteen fifteen billion dollars a year on its military. Saudi Arabia spends sixty seven billion dollars. When you combine Saudi Arabia with the Gulf states, it bumps up to about ninety billion. That's six times as much. And so Iran is still going to be at a serious disadvantage compared to its main rivals in the most advanced hardware, which these countries are buying from the United States and from Europe. They'll, yeah, they'll just be playing catch up. Um, and there, there's another interesting thing I saw as I was researching this, that the, the, san- the, the release of the embargo and the sanctions because of this deal are going to allow Iran to access uh, assets that they had in foreign banks that have been frozen for years and depending on who you, depending on where you read the information, you get different numbers. I, I, you know, about what that's going to be somewhere around a hundred billion. Even with that amount of money, it still would be hard for them, and that's just a one-time, you know, draw if they were crazy and withdrew it all. But the, even with that source of income coming in, uh, it would still be hard for them to outspend their rivals in the region, such as Saudi Arabia. Right. I mean, and in a way, Saudi Arabia might spend too much. I mean, uh, there was a report. It was Anthony Kordsman in the for Center, Center for Strategic International Studies. And um, he had a note where you know, Saudi Arabia is buying so much advanced equipment, fighter, fighter jets, missile defense systems, um, command and control systems, that, that Saudi Arabia's military is rather small. Um, um, and uh, they don't have enough soldiers to field all of this equipment. And so, um, you know, so that kind of puts it in perspective a little bit. <laughs> uh, that that's kind of fantastic. Yeah, there's not. It's not the only country in the region that has that problem. Qatar also is this is a similar story. Where they buy way more than they can use. Wow, that's a problem. I think a lot of uh, militaries would like to have. <laughs> um, so, okay, so Iran. Uh, do you have any idea to give us a? Some sense. I, I know that there are some things that they are really good at, right? I mean, they're really good at uh, building missiles. Um, yeah, I mean, for example, yeah, right. So, I mean, they, they, the Iran does have hun- has hundreds of uh, ballistic missiles uh, domestically produced. Uh, the exact numbers, but it's several hundred. And I mean, this is one of the really controversial aspects of the P five plus one deal. Uh, 
Israel in, in particular, um, you know, is terrified of Iranian, even conventionally armed ballistic missiles, non-nuclear, just regular conventional explosives. Um, the military utility of these is, I wouldn't overstate it, but politically these weapons are very, are again, terrifying. I mean, the idea of these, uh, not saying Iran would, but could um, target Israel with, with conventional ballistic missiles. And that, that would, uh, that would be, you know, uh, almost like uh, Iraq uh, during the uh, 1991 Persian Gulf War. We saw Iraq target Israel with Scud missiles. Uh, and uh, it, it caused relatively few casualties. But again, it's a terrifying weapon to have these things coming down. It disrupts everyday life. And so this would, um, so yeah, so it, Israel is, um, you know, being able to, to purchase missile components um even precision, more precision guided systems for the missiles, something where Iran lags behind um, its rivals is you know, one of the more, um, I could say, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word to use, uh, maybe not problematic, but yeah, definitely controversial. Um, yeah, it's one of the reasons why Israel is so against the deal, I guess, or that's one of the reasons. The idea that Iran will, you know, be able to buy new equipment that'll make their missiles more accurate. They're, of course, then also saying that Iran will be able to build a bomb, then they'll have the guidance system, and they'll be able to pull it all together, right, and attack Israel. I mean, that's uh, that's at least one of Netanyahu, the way Netanyahu paints the picture. But it's, a, it's a reasonable concern. I mean, I, I think that, but I, I think we need to remember to think about ballistic missiles as less of a military as having less military utility and more political influence it, it provides a sense of leverage and it's not just israel but also the the gulf states now the the trick is is that this isn't happening in a vacuum so saudi arabia and the gulf states and the united states are spending a lot of money on deploying missile defense systems israel also you know uh, has missile defense systems um and so i think that the, the concern is that you would have a you could have a conventional arms race as opposed to a nuclear arms race, which is progress of a kind, I suppose. <laughs> you mean you're better off? Uh, everybody just gets more tanks rather than more nukes. Uh, yeah, okay, I guess so. Fair enough. Could Saudi Arabia legitimately fear Iran as an existential threat? I don't know the answer to that question. Um, the the question is, in terms of a military threat you have to ask whether or not Iran could invade Saudi Arabia. Um, and I don't know if Iran could, it may be able to, um, if the situation in Iraq deteriorated far worse than it already has, um, Iran could in theory send conventional forces into Iraq, um, and Kuwait, but whether or not they would be able to maintain the supply lines and the logistics you know an army has to has to eat it has to have ammunition has to have fuel and um whether or not iran has that logistical backbone to support something like that is i'm not sure it would probably it would take them at this point several years to build up that infrastructure now if they really wanted to project power um in, in the region iran can yeah iran cannot move uh conventional forces across the Persian Gulf without, I mean, in a contested environment, I suppose is the military lingo in the sense of anybody shooting back. Um, they don't have enough, uh, 
They don't have enough transport ships to do that. They have some, but they would need, uh, they would, in, so in Iraq, for instance, they would need a, a government that is amenable, most likely amenable to an Iranian intervention to allow that, similar to, say, the Quds Force operating in Iraq. Um, you know, whether or not, whether, if a country didn't want the Iranians to be there, um, it would make it very difficult for, for, for Tehran to pull something like that off. Um, and so, I mean, again, so I think the longer term, in a military conflict with Iran, I think the longer term threat would be, with a country like Saudi Arabia, would be the threat to their shipping and a threat to their oil, which over time could present a real serious problem for the Saudi economy. Um it kind of brings up another thing, like as I'm thinking about the way that kind of war would be fought, another thing Iran is good at, along with the commandos, um, is drones, right? They have a fairly robust drone fleet, not not in the same way that we think of in America with Reapers and Predators, these armed drones, but for surveillance purposes, they, they make extensive use. Well, I wouldn't overstate it. So, well, the way okay. I would say it would be that, um, so Iran has used drones um, since the 1980s. Uh, um, they're, they have, uh, Tehran has more than a dozen, um, different types, uh, mostly used for ISR intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. Um, there's one called the, there's a very, well, let's say a variant of a drone called the swallow, which is, um, actually a suicide, uh, drone. It's a, effectively a suicide bomb. Um, now, and you know, they're, you know, they, they're used there. They've crashed in Syria. Um, uh, so they're they're getting experience using them. To put it in perspective, the United States has about 300 combat drones, Reapers and Predators. Um, in, in Pakistan alone, the U.S. has killed, spent nearly 4,000 people since 9-11. So the United States has learned that even those best drones have a lot of problems seeing things on the ground. They're not very good spotters. They, the images are relatively grainy. It's hard to determine if you've struck a target what damage you've caused. Um, you really need people on the ground who can coordinate either between the drone or between a drone and a manned strike aircraft. Doing it from the air alone is, is really difficult. And so Iran has drones, but again, I don't want to overstate the, you know, the threat from Iranian right, drones a, or, or something like that. In a, in a more, in a more conventional war, they would have the same problems they have now. Um, which, you know, coordinating the ground and the, and the sky. I see what you're saying. Right. And that, that's um, a big unknown, I think. And it, I mean, just, just, yeah. commu- you know, getting information from the drone to the ground is a huge challenge on its own. And there's a lot of unknowns here regarding Iran's capabilities in this area. Right. And they don't have their own satellites, do they? Although I know they've been attempting to actually launch, uh, uh, didn't they claim it uh, a couple of years ago that they'd actually sent a monkey into space? I'm pretty sure they did. <laughs> I think Iran has satellites. So. Uh, they, they did claim two years ago, Jason, that they sent a monkey into space. And it was the second time mm. they said they had done so. I, I wonder if um, the, the monkey had such a good time the first time. <laughs> uh, what What kind of – do we have any, any idea what kind of weapons um, Iran would want to buy or that Russia would be willing to sell to them? 
or China would be willing to sell well, it. With Russia, the big, the big sort of delayed purchase are S-300 uh, anti-aircraft missiles. It's, a, it's an export variant from Russia. But there's some of the defense analysts say they're, they're some of the best air defense missiles in the world. I mean, and that's, that's, a, that's something Iran can't produce the best stuff domestically there. So they have to import it. And um, the, the, this is principally to, you know, deter an air attack from the United States or Israel. So again, again, defensive. The Gulf states and Israel, they're not just worried about direct attack. There's, you know, when we talked earlier about the training of insurgent groups and helping those insurgent groups inside of other countries carry out the Iranian agenda. I think one way of putting it is that Iran practices what you call asymmetric warfare. So, I mean, the idea is that you use, if, you're, if, you're, if your opponent has, uh, think of a conventional military, it's like an army, a navy, and an air force. If you're, out, if you're outgunned by your enemy, then an asymmetric strategy uses your enemy's strength against it and tries to find weaknesses, which you can exploit either through uh, insurgency, you know, insurgency is an example of asymmetric warfare, swarming small boats in the Persian Gulf toward larger, big conventional warships is, a, is an asymmetric strategy. So I think the way of looking at Iran, the threat from Iran to its rivals is to look at ways in which it can practice that sort of asymmetric warfare. So supporting um, Shia popula- uh, activists, groups in Bahrain, for instance, um, were the Bahraini government toppled, then Iran could move conventional forces into Bahrain. But again, it, it has to rely on the asymmetric stuff before it can really, to, to, before it can rely on its conventional forces. It does sound that, you know, there's an awful lot of alarmism out there, uh, as much as there are real threats, or again, you know, maybe it's just that we think of these things as World War II movies (laughs) with lots of tanks sweeping across the desert, um, and it's just, I mean, that's not, that's really not the threat. I mean, that's... Well, I think you want to look at something like, like Hezbollah, right? That's more in line with the way the Iranian military's asymmetric warfare works. Yeah, right. Hezbollah is very interesting because they, they, it blends sort of a combination. Um, and so it's able to use really sophisticated uh, anti-tank guided missiles, um, which are, you know, most likely come from Iran, present an asymmetric threat to conventional Israeli forces, large numbers of tanks, for instance. Um, so, um, but I, again, I have to think about this in, you know, instead, instead of World War II, um, in the modern era, we often see militaries finding themselves in circumstances which they didn't anticipate or didn't prepare for. The Iranian conventional army, you know, is designed to fight a layered sort of defense in depth of the Iranian homeland. If Iran was, that conventional army was, found itself in an environment which is very different from that, it we may see weaknesses that we're not aware of weaknesses in logistics, the backbone, the supply, their officer corps. How is the military led? Uh, how are Iranian officers promoted? Does that have an effect on the fighting strength of Iranian units? So there's, there's a lot of unanswered questions and it, and again, we wouldn't see unless hopefully not, there was a, 
there was a conflict. Yeah, okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. And it does show you, though, I mean, Hezbollah, that's an example of the way things are being fought now. They, they're very effective. I mean, at least uh, they, they were against Israel, what was that, about uh, five years ago or so? 2006. 2006. Um, wow, I, I'm dating myself, so nine years ago, but still. Right, I mean, and that was a situation where you have a, you have a, uh, a small number of very professional insurgents in a way, but they're, you know, supplied with really sophisticated guided weapons. And so when Israel came across the border with tank columns, they found themselves, you know, actually taking pretty serious losses. Uh, and you, you can't necessarily fight an, a dispersed enemy like that with a conventional force. Hezbollah's strength is amplified by these weapons and their weaknesses are reduced by being able to disperse their forces. Like every encounter you ever read about, it's the, the light mobile force, right, that can scatter into the wind, you know, gives uh, the uh, centralized um, and heavy force a really hard time. And note that Iran is not the only country in the region that is practicing this form of warfare or this form of power projection. So if Iran's conventional forces were to, say, hypothetically, in theory, move into Iraq, they would find themselves fighting an enemy that fights a very different kind of style of war than they're accustomed to. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, in a way, uh, I mean, there's a, uh, I mean, ISIS at one point was, uh, you might've started as somewhat of a proxy force and uh, may have gotten a bit out of hand. <laughs> just, just a, a touch, touch out just of a hand. touch out of hand. Uh, ISIS practices. Yeah. Um, I'd say ISIS practices a kind of warfare that it, they're, very, they're very unpredictable. Um, they have some pretty heavy duty hardware. ISIS is its whole is a whole other beast, okay. right? It's a whole okay. other different kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, so all right. Well, back uh, back on track with Iran. I would just say um, the long and the short of the Iran story seems to be that it's just not. A really simple equation. It's not a matter of turning the money taps back on and all of a sudden they become a massive power uh, with thousands and thousands of tanks and hundreds of thousands of MiGs, you know, that'll fly across the skies and, and uh, conquer the Middle East, right? Right. There's this fear right now that that's exactly what's going to happen, that this, uh, this Iranian nuclear deal has unleashed something horrifying in the Middle East, and that's just not that's, that's overblown. Um, and doesn't look at what's actually going on in the region and what the people, the different powers in the region want. Okay. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for joining me for this. Um, I think it's really uh, interesting topic, and uh, sounds like there's definitely a lot of misinformation. Ben Hubbard from the New York Times is here to talk with us today about the Party of God, Hezbollah. They've been a force in the Middle East for decades, but their role is changing. The group's mission is no longer solely focused on destroying Israel. Instead, they're working with and for Iran and becoming a regional force. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Thank you. Do you mind starting with the basics? You know, what is Hezbollah what, and what's their goal? Well, Hezbollah, I mean, I think their goals have changed over time. I mean, Hezbollah has started out as a Lebanese militant group in the 80s, um, founded sort of with the Iranian guidance during the Lebanese Civil War, but it was you know, when you had a very messy civil war going on among many of the different fighting groups, you had different sort of disparate Shiite uh, religious militias that were involved in war. And 
Iran got involved and gave them some sort of advice and, and guidance, and you know, eventually Hezbollah emerged sometime in the mid '80s. There were differences on exactly when it happened. I believe they announced themselves publicly in 1985, although they've been around for a few years before that. And since then, they've they've just kind of grown and, and changed in different ways. For a long time, they were. I mean, at that time, Israel was still occupying a good chunk of South Lebanon. And so their first mission was to be a resistance force against the Israeli occupation of South Lebanon, which they did through classic insurgency tactics, you know, attacking convoys, roadside bombs, things like that. Very effective. Also worked a lot with, you know, many other different groups that were involved in the same kinds of resistance activities. And so they did that up until Israel withdrew in 2000. And then since 2000, they've kind of evolved in various ways. At a certain point, they decided that they were, in addition to being a militant group, were going to be a political party. So they joined the Lebanese political system. So now they have a number of ministries that they, you know, they have, they have ministers in the cabinet. They have a number of people in the parliament. They have political allies, and they're very active publicly in the Lebanese political system. Then they still have their military activities so they're a group that's been around, you know, they've been around 30, 35 years now, depending on when exactly you mark their beginning. They've been around for a very long time. And what really struck me when I started looking at them, I mean, I've been covering the Syrian civil war since early on. And, you know, Hezbollah has really used this as, you know, or, or the changes that Hezbollah have, have, is going through as an organization have really come out in its involvement in Syria. And then when I started digging into it, I sort of realized, wow, this is an organization that has changed in ways that I don't think a lot of people have recognized. I mean, everybody sort of always thinks of Hezbollah as this group that is there exclusively to fight against Israel. And that's what a lot of their rhetoric revolves around. And, you know, big war in 2006, that was was the last time they really went head to head with Israel. And then, you know, what we've seen in the last few years and sort of what I came across when I was doing reporting for this recent article was just really how much they're involved in things that aren't directly related to Israel or things, you know, they've, they've very much gone from being a Lebanese force, a political force and a military force inside of Lebanon to being a regional force. And they're just involved in so many different places now and in so many different ways. You know, obviously their role in Lebanon is quite clear. Their role in Syria has become quite clear. You know, we learned a lot about their involvement in Iraq. They have a lot of old relationships that have been rekindled with uh, different fighting groups in Iraq and Shiite militias in Iraq that have you know, they've sort of revived these with the help of Iran. And now these groups are they're sort of working together to fight the Islamic State, to push for Iranian interests in Iraq. They've gotten more, much more interested in the conflict in Yemen. I, I don't think they're as involved there as they are in other places, but it's definitely something that they consider one of their interests and something that they consider part of their regional project, even if they don't have as much kind of on the ground military and political support as they would have elsewhere. So that's what really struck me is that, you know, wow, we had this group that was really a big factor in Lebanon. And now it's very much a regional force that's operating in, in a number of different places and has moved away in certain ways from its from its key mission. I should say that Hezbollah very much denies that it's gotten away from its key mission. I mean, in terms of its own messaging and its own you know speeches by its leaders and the way that it talks about the state of the region. In its own media, very much sees all of this as connected. I mean, it will say that that everybody fighting to get rid of Bashar al-Assad in Syria is connected to Israel, and it's the Saudis and the Americans who are working together to support the terrorists who are trying to get. So you know, they sort of, in their view of the region, this is all connected. It's all part of resistance against what they see as the American-Israeli project in the region. So it's kind of like the speech uh, Cato the Elder, I think, used to give speeches during. I'm, I'm going back to the Roman Senate. 
uh, Matt, you can laugh at me, but at the end of every speech, even if it was on some kind of spending bill, he would say Cartago Delenda Est, which means Carthage must be destroyed, right? So anything that Hezbollah says, <laughs> they always end it with, and Israel must go. Yeah, it all, you know, I mean, it's still a very, very key part of their rhetoric. Um, and I do think that it is still, I mean, I, I don't want to make it sound in any way like they've given up on the fight against Israel. They've decided that, you know, they've sort of dropped that as one of their priorities. No, I still think it's something that's very important for them. And we don't have any reason to believe that they're not still investing lots and lots of resources in preparing for the next battle, whether it's training fighters, whether it's, you know, setting up new rockets and various other weapons that they can use against Israel should there be another war. Um, it's just that in addition to that, they're involved in another things that in my reading are not directly related to the fight against Israel. They're, they have much more to do with, um, you know, supporting their Shiite brethren, brethren in the region, you know, working very much hand in glove with Iran to, to try to advance that alliance's interests in the region. All right. Explain this connection to Iran. Does Hezbollah exist and become a regional power as it has without Iran? Hezbollah would not be what it is today without Iran. I mean, I, I don't know if I can quite say that it wouldn't exist. I mean, it is definitely true that in the 80s, it was, there, were, there were officers from the, from the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps who came to Lebanon and who helped form what became Hezbollah. So Iran has been involved in Hezbollah since the, since the very, very early days, and it's been involved throughout. Um, if we fast forward to this point, I mean, we know that Hezbollah gets the vast bulk of its financing directly from Iran to run everything from its political activities to its media activities to its social services. You know, here in Lebanon, it runs a whole school system. It runs social services. It has its own hospitals or hospitals that are affiliated with it. It has scout troops. It has, you know, lots and lots of activities and all these things. You know, it's like running kind of a mini state within the state and it takes a lot of money. And, you know, Hezbollah's own leaders will say, well, most of the money comes from Iran. I mean, they do have other sources of income, but but um, pretty much everybody agrees that the vast, vast majority of their budget comes from Iran. You also just have ideological, ideological ties. I mean, on the, on the religious level, I mean, Hezbollah is obviously a Shiite movement. Iran is, you know, the, 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 you know the, the sort of plays itself in the region as being the leader of the Shiite world. And, you know, many of Hezbollah's, Hezbollah's leaders accept, um, you know, the, the Iranian supreme leader as their, you know, they endorse William Faqiyah, this idea from the Iranian revolution that you should have you know, the rule by the, by the, by the top jurist. So, you know, you have, and then you also have sort of political alliances. I mean, these are people that don't like Saudi Arabia. They don't like the United States. They hate Israel. So, you know, there's, it's all kind of mixed up, but all this, you know, all of this ideology and, and all of these operational ties bring together, bring them together in a very, very close operational relationship. And I think we've very much seen this in Syria, you know, in Syria, when you look at some of the major battles that have happened, if you want to look at Aleppo, or at least the end of, of eastern Aleppo, the rebel enclave in eastern Aleppo at the end of last year, it was very clear that you had, you know, Iranian military officials, you know, IRGC officials who were on the ground. You had lots and lots of Hezbollah fighters. You had Hezbollah commanders. And they were sort of working together to run this, this large military operation that coordinated airstrikes with the Russians, coordinated with the Syrian military, and also coordinated, you know, what some people say was up to 20, you know, you know, Thousands and thousands of other Shiite fighters from Iraq, from Afghanistan, from Pakistan, from other places who had come to sort of join this big battle. Um, you know, and that's what we're seeing more is that, you know, Iran is, is using Hezbollah in different ways in the region to try to bring about changes that it would like to see. What's the advantage for Iran? 
I think a lot of it is operational. I mean, some of it is geographic. I mean, if you look at Iran, you know, Iran is Iran is quite far away from Israel, and so if it really wants to threaten Israel, what's the better way to do it than to help build a strong military force directly on Israel's border? Um, and so I think in the early days of the creation of Hezbollah, that was very much the idea. You know, okay, well, if if Iran wants to strike Israel, it has to fly its jets over a certain number of countries to get there. Many of those countries probably wouldn't be very happy about it, but. Instead, they basically helped create a military force smack on the border that can attack Israel when you know whenever whenever there's a new whenever there are new hostilities. So there's that, and then I think as as they branched out into more regional activities, a lot of it is operational. Um, I mean, now Hezbollah has a very large number of very well trained fighters. They have very you know skilled operatives in various ways, and they're also Arabs. I mean, even Shiite Arabs, you know, a lot of them are not entirely comfortable with Iran. There's, there's sort of, you know, distrust sometimes between Arabs and Persians. There's also linguistic difficulties. You know, most of the, a lot of the Iranian officials don't speak Arabic. And so it's hard for them to communicate, to communicate with these Arabic populations. So, well, if they were through Hezbollah, I mean, Hezbollah, because of its many, many years fighting against Israel, you know, it's seen very positively in many parts of the Arab world. And so when its guys show up, you know, to do any kind of activity, they're, they're usually well-received. You know, people figure, okay, these guys are good fighters, they're good military, they're Arabs like us, and we can understand them because they speak Arabic. So, you know, they're allowed to, or they're, they're able, just because of their Arabic background, to, um, you know, to kind of be an Arabic, an Arabic face for many of the things that Iran wants to do in the region. And I don't mean this to, that you know Hezbollah is some sort of puppet of Iran. I think these are also things that Hezbollah very much wants to do. I mean, I do very much see it as an alliance. I think that they work very much in tandem um, on a lot of shared, you know, their shared vision for the region. I had a question from you're talking about the infrastructure that Hezbollah has and um, the way that they work with Iran. They sound more like an army to me than a militia, but they're always referred to as a militia. Um, do you have an idea of, uh, is there a difference? Is it some just semantic? Well, I don't know. I'm sure if you were to talk to military specialists, they would have, you know, exactly what the definition is. You know, when, how do you, what, what exactly is the difference between a militia and, and an army? I, I usually call them militia just because they're not, a, they're not, they're not a state force. I mean, I usually consider you know, an army is very much the armed, you know, the the armed force of a given state or of a given government. And Hezbollah is still, I mean, it still remains a sub-state actor. Um, so that that's why I refer to them as a militia. But, but um, you know, there are certainly debates about, you know, do they now have the power of an army or are they now operating in ways that make them more like an army than like a militia? You know, different sort of experts interested in Hezbollah debate that in different ways. And you've written that the core force that Hezbollah has is something in the order of 50,000 men. And I, I assume they're mostly men in this case. No, I don't think the core force is 50,000 men. I mean, anything that has to do with numbers of Hezbollah, it's very, very, it's, it's all murky, partly, mostly because they don't want people to know how many fighters they have. Um, so, you know, various experts who study them will give various assessments. Sometimes Hezbollah officials will... If you sort of tell them, well, we heard this, they'll say, oh, that's too high. Oh, that's too low. You know, and, and there are also, you know, in Lebanon, there are a lot of, um, you know, political analysts and other people who are very close to the movement. And so, you know, you can talk to all these different kinds of people. And, you know, I mean, I think that the, the realistic estimates are, are in the low tens of thousands, you know, perhaps 20,000, you know, experienced trained fighters and then certain other numbers of, of 
you know, people that are considered more reservists. I think it's gotten more complicated in Syria because there's been some wider recruitment that's gone on. There have been a lot of people who were probably not fighters before, but just because of the size of the battles in Syria, there have been people who have gone with Hezbollah into Syria to serve various, you know, to do various things there. Um, I think in the article when I mentioned the 50,000, I think, I think just demographically, 50,000 is about the max that they could possibly ever turn out. I mean, if you look at just the demographics of Lebanon, I mean, unless they're going to start recruiting foreigners, which, which they've never done overtly, I think 50,000 would be the max. But I don't think there's any reason to think they actually right now have that many, you know, trained Hezbollah fighters. I think it's probably, you know, more in the 20,000 range. And then with, with, with others who can chip in in various ways. Just another question along the same vein. What kind of equipment do they use? Um, I guess it goes along the whole... Are they a military versus, you know, a militia? Is this a group that has tanks and, you know, really high-level equipment? Do they have an air force? I know that you've written that they have tens of thousands of rockets, many of which are aimed at Israel. But beyond that, what do they look like when they're fighting? And that's a good question. I mean, I'm not, I'm not actually a military or a munitions expert, so, you know, I'm sure there, there are certainly other people who can give you better information on that. I mean, I think when it comes to, you know, when it comes to the battle against Israel, you know, now that they're not directly, directly resisting Israeli presence in Lebanon, I mean, you know, I think that they've, certainly in Lebanon, there's no need for them to use the old roadside bombs and and those kind of close insurgency tactics. Um, I think for the fight against Israel, it's a combination of, you know, small arms and, you know, small arms, RPGs, things like that. They definitely blew up tanks that tried to come into Israel and tried to come into Lebanon in 2006. And then they have their, you know, rockets, which which some of them are sort of short range and can, you know, they fire in large numbers to hit near the border. Others are much more precision. And, and uh, you know, there's a lot of fear in, you know, there's certainly fear in Israel that they can hit lots of sensitive locations inside of Israel should there be another war. Um, in Syria, I mean, it's there's not great visibility on it. They do have some, you know, they do certainly have armored vehicles and things like that. I mean, I don't think they have huge groups of tanks that they can deploy. I mean, huge tank columns and things like that. But, you know, they do have some, you know, they do have some of this stuff. One thing that they don't have is an air force. You know, in Syria, they, they sort of work with the, you know, they coordinate with the Russians and they work directly with the Syrian military but none of these guys, I think, they do very much remain, remain malicious. You know, they might get an armored vehicle here and there. And, you know, I'm sure they have mortars and they have advanced RPGs and certain kinds of advanced, you know, guided missiles and anti-tank weapons and things like that. But they don't have an air force. And, you know, in the past, when, when Hezbollah has gone up against Israel, at least in the most recent wars, it's really been Israel's air force that's, that's caused the most destruction to the other side. So... Anyway, that's, that's just sort of something to keep in mind that, you know, even if they can rally tens and tens of thousands of militiamen to sort of storm the Golan Heights or whatever, Israel still does have a very powerful air force that it can use. I mean, what other kind of weapons these guys have gotten in the meantime that might threaten that air force? I don't think anybody knows and we probably won't know until unless there's a war. And then we, you know, it's kind of like a game of poker that everybody has things in their hands and we don't really know what's there until... The hand is called and everybody lays their cards on the table. So that's that's a bit the way that it is with trying to guess what kind of munitions everybody has these days. Um, but I, I, I mean, I think in Syria, you know, in Syria, they've also they've also kind of acted as like a force multiplier just because their their fighters are reputed to be better, you know, much more experienced, much more courageous. 
Um, and so they, they sort of have fought a lot alongside the Syrian military, which has all the trappings of a traditional military, you know, tanks and, you know, all the various other heavy weaponry that, a you know, a militia might not have. By the way, people should actually read Ben's article. We're going to post links to it, both in the episode show notes on Facebook. And of course, I'm sure Ben would want to add, he's not the only person who worked on this article. <laughs> it looked like it was a large team across the uh, Middle East. Right, that's true. So Matt, I know you had a question about the other conflicts that Hezbollah is fighting now. Yeah, where can you give us, I know we've kind of touched on it in some of the other answers, but where exactly are all the places that they are fighting right now? Well, I think the main places outside of Lebanon, I think probably in order of importance, number one would be Syria, number two would be Iraq, and number three would be Yemen. And I think they have presence in, in you know, a number of other places, but it's much, much smaller, and, and I think we know very much about exactly what they're up to there. I mean, Syria, they've deployed thousands and thousands of fighters who have, who have been on the front lines and also played kind of a coordinating role with a lot of the other Shiite militias who have come in from different countries, you know, while also coordinating with the Russians, coordinating with the Syrian military. And so that's very much been the place where they've made their largest investment in kind of foreign military endeavors um, and where they probably gained the most. I mean, it's, I think for Hezbollah, it's been an incredible kind of confidence boost. And it's, um, you know, so far, at least it's come away as looking like a great success, even though they have, you know, suffered substantial casualties. And, and I'm sure it's also cost them a lot of money, although we, less, we know less about that. All right. So in both Iraq and Syria, they are fighting Islamic State, correct? Well, in Syria, it's more complicated because I think I think in some places they are. I think in other places they're fighting people, fighting basically government opponents. They're fighting members of the Syrian opposition who are not Islamic State, some of whom are Islamists and some of whom are not. I mean, we, in Syria, the trick is we have this whole range. In the opponents of the Syrian government, we have sort of, you know, people from some of the original rebel groups that started early off in 2011 that they really just want to overthrow the government and set up something. And then from there, you have kind of a whole Islamist spectrum. You have some people who sort of use Islamist language, but don't necessarily want to set up an Islamic state. You've got, you know, and then it sort of goes, then you've got Jabhat al-Nusra, the, you know, the Al-Qaeda branch in Syria, which is, you know, obviously following a much more kind of classic jihadi model and then then you've got the islamic state which is kind of its own thing because it doesn't it, it's really kind of off doing its own thing with the caliphate and so anyway I, I, the, the bulk of what they've been fighting would be the first group you know the the sort of anti-assad rebels that's that's where their their major investments have been i think more recently you've seen them kind of intervene in the fight against isis which is much further east or, uh east closer to iraq and then, and, and then once you get into Iraq, their, their rule does really change. I mean, one thing that's, that was quite striking for me while we were reporting this article, we were able to do an interview with uh, Sheikh Naim Qasim, who is the, basically the number two official in, in Hezbollah. And he was very frank about all this. I mean, we went in and said, hey, we talked to people here. We talked to people in Iraq. We did this. We did that. And he just kind of said, yeah. And he, he kept using the phrase transferring expertise. He said, you know, our job is to transfer expertise. And he was he was very much... You know, it was very, he, he was very much just saying, you know, we've been at this for 30, 35 years. We've got a lot of great experience in militancy and fighting and various other things. And now we consider it our job to pass along that experience to all of our, you know, all of our allies in the region. And so I think Iraq is one place where you see that happening much more clearly, um, where you've got sort of, you know, Hezbollah operatives going there and working with Iraqi militias who are who there. They're definitely fighting the Islamic State. 
uh, you know, and teaching them how to use missiles that they didn't know how to use beforehand and, you know, teaching them other kinds of tactics and things like that. So does that mean that there are places in Iraq where Hezbollah and the U.S. military are fighting the same enemy? Yeah, technically, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, I don't imagine they're like sharing the same bases and whatever, but, um, you know, the U.S. is working with, you know, the official Iraqi military and with the Kurds to fight ISIS. Uh, meanwhile, the Iraqi, you know, Shiite militias are fighting ISIS in other areas and basically coordinating with the Iraqi military. And Hezbollah is there, you know, basically acting as advisors and trainers mostly for for those militias. So, you know, yeah, I mean, they're, you know, if, if you... Yeah, they do definitely share a common enemy in Iraq. So it's kind of like uh, when you say transferring expertise, it's kind of an attempt in Iraq for them to project influence rather than direct power. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that there's there, – I haven't seen a whole lot of – you know, I, I don't think there's much to support that they want to actually exercise power in Iraq. I mean, you know, maybe influence because they want – I think it's much more of a case that they, they consider themselves part of this international alliance – which they, you know, the, the quote-unquote resistance axis. And so they really want to use their experience to boost their allies, you know. So they go and they help them out and they teach them how to do things and then those guys get more power in their country and that's kind of good for everybody. I mean, it's good for Iran because a lot of those groups are also supported by Iran. It's good for Hezbollah because they're, you know, when they look at the region, they see, they see themselves as all on the same team. But I don't think, you know, you don't have Hezbollah going and trying to recruit Iraqis to join. You know, it still remains a Lebanese organization with Lebanese leadership, Lebanese members, even though it's kind of taken on these new regional roles. So I think it's much more about boosting its allies and, and boosting the, you know, the, the resistance access, as it, as it were, across the region. There was one other aspect that, it, to me, was tied right into this that really struck me from the article. The militants that they're training, I think you said they get only 15 days worth of training is that making these guys these volunteers essentially just cannon fodder i think there's a whole bunch of different kinds of training going on i mean i think there's definitely long-term advanced training that happens in iran people that get flown to iran and they do these long courses on you know various military technologies activities things like that there's you know we believe there's training that happens here in lebanon some people get brought here for sort of specialized sniper training or other kinds of explosive training things like that um, I mean, I think that those fighters that I talked to in Iraq that very much got these crash courses, yeah, you could probably say that they were a type of cannon fodder. I mean, these were mainly poor Shiite Iraqis from the south uh, that don't have a lot, you know, probably don't have great employment opportunities, not particularly well-educated. A lot of them signed up for this because, you know, part of it is ideological. Part of it is that they were just angry that the Islamic State had taken over a large part of their country and they were worried that this was going to pose some kind of a threat. So they go to sign up for these local militias. There's also, you know, always an economic motive as well. You know, some of these guys earn more money with these militias than they would probably earn, you know, working as day laborers or what their other possibilities were. You know, I think that at certain points, yeah, they definitely just brought in huge numbers of guys. They needed to get them on the front lines to sort of hold the front line or to make some kind of, kind of advance. And the best they could do was give them kind of a two-week crash course and like, here's how you use a Kalashnikov and here's how you change the clip and here's how you take cover, here's how you advance, here's how, you know, those kinds of sort of basic infantry training, and then you put them on the front line because you need to, you know, you need to reinforce it. So I think that, you know, there's a range of training. I don't think everybody's getting two weeks, um, but I think in certain places, certain parts of the war in Syria, there was just such a need that they had to, you know, they had to deploy people very quickly, and they probably didn't have time to do more than that. All right, I think we got one last question for you. 
So what happens to these tens of thousands of troops when these conflicts start winding down? That's a very good question, and I don't think I don't think anybody really knows. I mean, it's something that makes uh, lots of other people in the region nervous. I think it makes the United States nervous. It certainly makes the Israelis nervous. I think it makes the Saudis and the Saudi allies nervous. The United Arab Emirates, I think, are very nervous. You know, because they sort of see, you know, this 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 standing army or these very flexible militias that, um, you know, along with their military training, will get a lot of ideological training as well, and sort of Shiite themed jihad and. So I think that for the people that don't like Iran's influence in the region, this is a very scary thing because then you now have these very flexible, deployable forces that you can send various places. You know, that could mean that in Iraq, you know, the stronger these guys get, the easier it is for them to advocate inside of Iraq for things that are good for Iran. I mean, I think in Syria, they definitely, you know, they're going to have a foothold. There's, you know, when all these militias get involved, they're going to want something in the end. Uh, I don't. I think it's probably too early for us to know how it's all going to shake out. You know, Nasrallah said in a recent speech, Nasrallah, the secretary general of Hezbollah, basically threatened Israel and said, you know what, the next time there's a war with Israel, it's not just going to be us, but we're going we're gonna to bring all these other guys with us. So that's certainly a possibility as well. You know, instead of having however many tens of thousands of fighters you have from Hezbollah, they can also call on the Iraqis and the Syrians and the, you know, Afghanis and the other, other people who have kind of been brought into this Iranian military operation and use, use, all, use them to bolster whatever fight they have with Israel. Ben, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, sleepyhead. Why so sleepy? Oh, it's because your mattress is a bag of potatoes and scrap metal. You should try a Nectar mattress. With award-winning layers of comfort, you can sleep easy knowing you got incredible value. Mattresses start at just $499, and you get hundreds of dollars in accessories thrown in as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. Today, we're focusing on Iran. Amir Hanjani is a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council's South Asia Center and an expert on Iran. He also wrote some fantastic op-eds for me when I was an editor at Reuters. Thanks for joining us. A pleasure to be with you. And uh, I, I, I hope I'm still writing fantastic op-eds for winners uh, since you've left. <laughs> <laughs> you still are. I just don't have the pleasure of editing them anymore. <laughs> so it, it's my loss, but no, Reuters is still doing fine Fair out enough. of the deal. So can we just start off with sort of a bit of a primer? Um, wh- whose side is Iran on in the Syrian conflict? Well, um, first of all, it's uh it's great to be with you, and uh, that's a really important topic, and I think it's very timely, and I think it can be very confusing to people who aren't, like you and I, fervent Middle East watchers, to disentangle, you know, a lot of the fact from fiction, and um, see the, you know, uh, hear the, to get, get rid of all the noise, background noise. I, I don't think that they're, they're, ostensibly, Iran says they're on the side of the Syrian government, and that government is the Assad regime. They were technically asked by the Assad regime to come in and support them in their fight against the rebels. Uh, but as you know, you and I know, and as your listeners know, you know, states don't act benevolently. <laughs> they have, they act because of their self-interest. And Iran has very real interests in Syria. And uh, it would not be there just because uh, Assad asked them to if they did not feel those interests were threatened by his downfall. Now, you say that, and another 
justification that's been cited for the alliance is, uh, and I think, and please uh, help me with this, I think it seems like it's widely misunderstood. There's been talk that Assad's regime and Iran are co-religionists, but they're not exactly the same, right? I mean, no, they're not all. They're not at all. In fact, that's kind of a bullshit answer, isn't it? Or maybe you can explain. It, that it is. It is. I mean, you know, there's the, the Iranian, the majority, Iran follows the, the 12er sect of Shia Islam, um, which really means that they go by 12 imams and, and then the last one is an occultation. He sort of comes back in a time the way Christ does. Um, and, it, and it's an Islamic Republic. You know, if those who have traveled to Iran have been to Iran, you know, while it's open in many ways, you know, there's still, it's still closed in a lot of other ways too. You know, there's alcohol is not freely available. You know, there's no such thing as nightclubs and, and so forth. Uh, Syria is a secular regime and the minority regime, which actually rules Syria, the regime, the, the, the minority religion of, of the Assad regime is the Alawite sect, which is a sect of Shia Islam, but it's not as, uh, it just follows different precepts than the, than the, than the, uh, than the 12 or sect. Of Shiism that Iran follows. So, are they loosely in the same family? Yes, but are is there does their religion permeate their government and and their domestic policies the way it does in Iran? Absolutely not. Syria, you know, was a, was a very open society. Headscarves are not mandatory. There was alcohol flowing at all hotels. It's it's, it's just it was just a, it's a very different different country, a very different different flavor of of religion than than that of Iran. These states are, are bound together by common interests. They're not bound together by ethnicity. Iranians are Persian, Syrians are Arab. They're not really bound together by religion either. Can you talk a little bit about what those common interests are? Certainly. I mean, you have to go back to the time of the Iran-Iraq War. Most all regimes in the region supported Saddam Hussein. The Gulf states did. Jordan did. Syria was the outlier. It did not actually support Iran. And the Iranian... Islamic Republic, the, the political elite, the establishment never forgot that. When Israel invaded Lebanon and went through the south of Lebanon, it was, and, and Iran helped the Shia in Lebanon organize and founded Hezbollah, it was through Syria where the arms and the training and the, the sort of the flow of people would go through to get to, to southern Syria. Uh, sorry, southern, uh, southern Lebanon. So for, for Iran, um, Syria was always a gateway to Hezbollah, but also was a place where it had a forward position vis-a-vis Israel. And it was a way for them to deter an Israeli strike by, you know, being in southern Lebanon, by having a presence or a footprint in, uh, in Syria. Although the footprint was very light. Now it's quite heavy. That, that's really the tie that binds. Um, uh, Syria and Iran. It's, it's, it's this, from the Iranian side, it's, you know, we have to, we have to be there because we have to deter Israel from coming in and striking us. We have to be there because we have to support Hezbollah. The way we can only support Hezbollah is by having that corridor to get manpower and weapons into southern Lebanon from Syria. From the Syrian perspective, it's, they don't really have friends in the region. And the only friends that they have, the Assad regime have, uh, has been Iran. And they saw that when the Arab Spring happened and people took the streets of Damascus. One by one, the Arab countries in the region started supporting the, 
the rebels. The only country that, that in the region that supported the Assad regime was Iran. So um, it, it is a, uh, a mutually strategic relationship, if you will. Um, it's one that is in place because of what each side views as essential from the other. And that's what's caused this this relationship to grow over the last 40 years. Do you have any idea what the uh, people ruling Iran actually think of Bashar al-Assad? Uh, is there any talk that people uh, that you might have heard? Um, they're not. They're certainly not happy with how he's prosecuted this war. <laughs> and, you know, that they, they, they uh, I think that they, they wish he had some different policies in place at the beginning. That being said, you know, they support him, as I said, not because out of, out of love and affection for him or his family or his tribe or his religion or his ethnicity. They support him because they know if Assad falls, then uh, a major chess piece of, of Iran and the region has fallen. Mm-hmm. And Syria goes into the Saudi, Jordanian, U.S. camp. Uh, and Iran loses a very powerful and strategic country. It doesn't have many friends in the region. So their ties to Assad are, are ties because of their, of their interests to Assad. They're not ties because they think, you know, unlike, let's say, Iraq and southern Iraq, where there's a lot of ties that bind the Iranians and the southern Iraqis, their religion, their, their, their border, um, cultural ties with the Kurds in the north of Iraq, linguistic ties, ethnic ties. With Syria, it's, it's, it's a, it's purely a, relationship of, of interest, of mutual interest. In order to understand this a little bit better, I was thinking you might be able to help explain a little bit about what the situation, what life right now is like in Iran itself. So it's enmeshed in a war beyond its borders. So can we talk a little bit about what's going on inside and how that might be affecting yes. it? Can we start off purely with the economics? What kind of shape is Iran's economy in? It's in very bad shape. Years of mismanagement, corruption, sanctions have really uh, made Iran into a economic basket case. Its, its economy is predominantly state run. It's, it's ossified, if you will. It's not able to meet the needs of its people. And you saw that in the, in the uh, protests of, of last month took place in cities that I hadn't even heard of. I'd look for on the map. But these cities are, are cities, you know, that have the profile of cities and villages that the regime draws upon for their support. It would be, I compare it to, it would be like a red state revolt of Donald Trump in the, in the United States. If all of a sudden states like Mississippi and Alabama and Arkansas and Georgia started protesting, <laughs> took to the streets against Donald Trump's policies. Right. That's what it was like in these cities where the, the the regime draws on on support from these sort of rural, not as economically prosperous cities that have that have very uh, religious communities. Uh, that those are those are bastions of the regime that they draw. But yet it was those it was those cities that actually took to the streets, and those villagers and those townsmen that, that took to the streets, um, because the the economy is, is just not meeting the needs of uh, uh, of its people. It's 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 quite sad because Iran's a very rich country. It's a large country. Um, it has a quite a dynamic population, but they've uh, they've really mismanaged 
that, that economy since the revolution and, and the chickens are coming home to roost now. When you say a rich country, part of it, would that include the money that was supposedly unfrozen in the wake of the Iran nuclear deal, or at least that's how the U.S. thinks of it, the Iran nuclear deal. I'm sure the Iranians yeah. call it something else. But not just – I don't just mean the cash uh, that uh, they might have gotten access to, but it's also supposed to be that they can now sell more oil in more places. So nothing's improved? I think that you know the, the nuclear deal, we, we keep saying you know, in the election campaign here, they say, you know, we gave them $150 billion. Well, it's important to know that. So that we get it was that was their money to begin with. <laughs> uh, it's it, it was because of sanctions it was really blocked and frozen. Or it wasn't 150 million. It was closer to 100 100 billion. No, since the sanctions have been lifted, the nuclear related sanctions, Iran has been slowly and surely been able to access that that money, been able to sell its oil and gas and petrochemicals back into the international market, and it's 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 slowly recouping its 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 uh, its market share in those international markets, but that's not enough. It's not enough. It's 80 million people. I mean, Iran is not, you know, it does not, you know, has production about 4 million barrels a day and it uses about 1.8 million domestically. So it really, you know, it sells about 2.2 million barrels of oil a day. Um, Saudi Arabia, you know, it's, it's rival to the South, you know, has a population of about 30, 35 million people and, and sells 14 million barrels and produces 14 million barrels of oil a day. I think, consumes about three to four million and then, and then sells about 10 million. <laughs> so, you know, just to give you some idea of, of, of scale, it, it needs much more just having the sanctions lifted to sell its oil and gas and unblocking a hundred billion dollars is, is not enough. The sanctions that are still there, the secondary sanctions and this perception that the U S could pull out of the, of the nuclear deal and the old sanctions could come back on has not really allowed for foreign investments and for trade to, to pick up with Iran. In many ways, it's still in, in the penalty box economically. So where does that leave it with uh, in terms of, you know, when the leadership is looking out into the world, <laughs> what sort of lens does the their economic straits put on them? Does it have a big impact on why they're in Syria? Does it have... It- no, I, you know, I, I think we have to disentangle those two things. And, 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 and I'm not sure, you know, yes, many of the people that were protesting were unhappy with Iran's foreign policy, but there's no, you know, there's no poll that I could look to that says the majority of the Iranian people are not supportive of Iran's foreign policy. Because in, in point of fact, they are supportive of Iran fighting ISIS. They are supportive of Iran being fighting wars against Sunni extremism outside of Iran's borders mm-hmm. because they know that if they're not fighting those wars outside of Iran's borders, the chance of fighting those wars inside Iran's borders increase. So I, I think it's, it's, you know, you, there's these snapshots, of these protesters saying, you know, we want to make sure that, you know, the money shouldn't be spent in Syria. The money, yes. I'm sure there are many people that feel that way. I'm just not sure that's the, how the majority of the people feel. You know, we don't know. We don't have a, an independent poll to, to assess that. At least I haven't seen one done. But what we do know is that these two things are separate in terms of what Iran spends in foreign foreign affairs and in these wars is a pittance to what it has and it has mismanaged over the last 40 years. So so, uh, you know, this economy has been state run. It's 
40% of it is now controlled by the, or maybe as some people say 60%, I've seen some experts, 60% is controlled by the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guards. There's a lot of nepotism. There's a lot of corruption. Its banking sector is, for all intents and purposes, bankrupt. Most of its banks are, are holding a lot of bad debt. Their, their currency has been devalued. Yet, as the currency is devalued, but inflation is, is quite strong and prices have risen. So people's purchasing power, you know, the, over the last 10 years have gotten less and less and add to that sanctions that are, that have been really, really onerous. It's really a, a, a panoply of, of things that have come together to a perfect storm, you know, through a perfect storm that have, have put them where they are, but they only have, the leadership only has itself to blame for that. And, and I think the nuclear deal, having the nuclear deal and having those sanctions removed actually brought more of these things to the surface. You mean because they weren't able to directly just blame sanctions for the economic problem? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. You brought up the Revolutionary Guard as an economic entity. Uh, yes. So we hear about them all the time as a military force. I mean, they're parts of it at least are called elite military force. Maybe you could explain a little bit more about what they mean, who they are inside the country then. Yeah, the Revolutionary Guard, you know, are they number between 250 and 400,000. They are since the revolution happened because the, the the when the revolution happened, the clerical regime was quite distrustful of the traditional army and the traditional navy of Iran. They viewed those entities as being very nationalistic and very pro um, the previous regime, the Shah's regime. So they set up the Revolutionary Guard as a, and they are protectors of the Islamic Republic. And they have expeditionary forces, such as the Quds Force, that go outside the country and conduct operations. Inside the country, though, they, over the last, since really, really the last 15, 16 years, but accelerated during the Ahmadinejad presidency, they have started to, to gain a lot of economic influence. They have corporations, they have front companies, they're in oil and gas, they're in construction, they're in telecoms, they're in insurance, they're in banking, they're in everything. And uh, they operate ports, they operate the airports in Iran. So they, they are, they are, they are in everything and they have real economic interests. And um, because they were, uh, it was seen at the time they were the ones in, during the Iran-Iraq War that were fighting the war and, and took heavy, heavy casualties, heavy losses. When those people came back, they wanted jobs and they wanted their share of the cake. And that has only increased over time. And the sanctions that the U.S. and its allies have placed on, on Iran really target them and have really sort of hampered their interests. That being said, within the country, they're being now challenged by President Rouhani to divest themselves and of, of corporate interests. And, and that's then clearly they don't want to because, you know, there's, they make a lot of money doing what they're doing. And no one likes to, once you have money, you don't want to give it up, right? What do they do with their money? I mean, is it that they're buying weapons? Is it just that there are some very, very rich revolutionary guards? Yeah. It's a whole um, infrastructure, you know. They, they, it's a, it's, it's an infrastructure. They make money. You know, guards. When you're, when you're in the guards and you retire, you join these one of these companies, and, and, or if you are 
a family of a guardsman who's been martyred during the Iran-Iraq war. You know, these companies are essentially that your family are pensioners, these companies that they give a slice of the, of some proceeds to you. So they are, they are, if you will, Iran's version of the military industrial complex. Are they, are they buying missiles and weapons? No, that, that's the state. The state does that. The government does that. They are conducting economic, you know, they have banks, they have construction companies that, that get contracts from the government or from private parties, but mostly from the government, from the Supreme Leader's office or from the elected government to build things and do things. What percentage of this vast beast is still a military force at all? I mean, what percentage of them are uh, you know, actively take up arms to defend the regime or to uh, fight outside its borders. Well, I, I and I and I can sense that you're struggling with it because it's kind of kind of foreign concept to us as Americans. Absolutely, to have, to have yes. Yeah, yeah. The Marine Corps and the Air Force don't don't have a business empire, uh, and, and in, in Iran, it's 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 quite. Uh, it's perverse that way, I guess. I, I've heard it's the um, same in Egypt also, uh, that they, the yeah, Egyptian so army makes and, and, and it, refrigerators. I, yeah. I remember reading that. Yeah. And, and in China too. Now you, you see Xi Jinping wants to sort of, you know, rein in the People's Republic army because they have business interests. No, they have, they have anywhere between, as I said, 250 to 400,000 active guards. Those are, okay. But those are active. Hit. Got it. So those are active, but the, the ones who are, they, they have, an equal number who have, who have been retired. And generally when you retire, you know, from, from being an active duty, you go into, into the, the guards business empire and you, you fit somewhere in there, whether it's in oil and gas or construction or banking or insurance, there's a job for you. So actually it, it, it is, and, and many of these companies employ Iranians who are not in the guards, right? They're, they employ, you know, this, they control anywhere between 40 to 60 percent of the economy. So a lot of people work in these companies that the guards run. To say that they're an integral part of the state doesn't even begin to describe it, right? <laughs> no, it's, it's so it's very hard. I mean, you know, in, in, here in the U.S., we target the guards a lot. But in Iran, there are many people that they may not be happy with what the guards are doing or their policies, but are actually working for guard the guard. The guards in some of these companies, um, and it's, it's it's very hard. And Rouhani is trying to do this. He's trying to to have them get out of the economy and stick to being a a military force. It's very hard to do though, you know, when when they control so much of it. Uh, and, and you're going to see in Iran, you're going to see that the guards pushing back and saying, you know, no, we're not. We we don't want to stop our business interests because you know this business interest sustains those. People who have served us and families of those who have, who have, uh, who are, their sons have been, you know, have been killed, um, uh, during the war. I was wondering if you could also talk about, for very briefly, where else Iran is fighting. I was really caught by what you said about, you know, the sense that if we don't fight them there, they will fight us here, which of course is, um, military doctrine that's very familiar to people in the United States. We're not talking about yes. the same us, them necessarily. Yes. Uh, but the yes. whole idea of having expeditionary forces so that you don't have to defend your borders from the inside. So where else is Iran fighting? Well, they were very active in Iraq. Yeah, I think Iran is, has great influence in Iraq and, and, and they, they, they help train and mobilize these 
these popular fronts, you know, these Shia, different Shia militia there. They're, they're very active in, in Lebanon, in southern Lebanon, as you know, with Hezbollah. They, they're active in parts of Afghanistan recruiting, uh, Shia militia. You know, and, and I think that you know, Iran does this because it's, it feels very insecure in this region that it's in. We look at Iran a lot and they, you know, they, they're, they can be such a malign force, uh, in the region, a malevolent force. But the way they see it is that they're surrounded by countries that don't like them and that have a very powerful ally in the United States that, that has far greater capabilities than Iran does. So how they try and match that force structure that's, that's against them is by, you know, tying themselves up with these militias and getting into countries and fomenting unrest to, in their minds, level the, the playing field a bit. Just one last question. As far as Syria goes, what would winning look like for Iran? Well, I think there are no winners in Syria. I mean, it's like in the old days of the Roman Empire when they would go and if they if they couldn't really the war wasn't going their way and they want to conquer people, they would just burn the city down, the town down. And they would say, you know, they'd call it peace and they call it victory. Who is going to rebuild Syria? Iran doesn't have the capabilities or the, or the money to rebuild Syria. Syria is now a divided country with all different different parts of the country occupied by by different forces claiming sovereignty over it. I, I think for them. For Iran, for them, victory looks like being there and, and, and having a military footprint there that enables them to deter an Israeli strike. Also gives them connectivity to Hezbollah, being able to arm and resupply Hezbollah. As long as they can do that, they would call it victory. I don't think they have any, they have any intention of, of rebuilding Syria and, and making it a, making it a, you know, a prosperous country, although they, they wouldn't mind it, it be that. But they don't they don't have those capabilities uh, to do that. Amir, thank you so much for joining me to talk about this. Well, it was, it was great to be with you and, and I enjoyed it. That's all for this week, War College listeners. Thank you for indulging a little history. I hope we all came away a little bit wiser or at least a little bit more informed. War College is me, Matthew Galt, Kevin O'Dell and Derek Gannon. It was created by myself and Jason Fields. You got to hear a lot of this week. You can find us wherever fine pods are casted and on Twitter at war underscore college. We'll be back next week for that China chat. And after that, a conversation with the elusive Bellingcat. Stay safe until then.